Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Su Chen Tan, the founder and president at Disserene Capital. Su Chen started the firm over 13 years ago with less than $100 million in assets. Since then, the firm has grown to manage over $2 billion for clients. Disserene has one of the most compelling structures and relationships with its LPs of any public investing firm I know. I've had the privilege of listening to Su Chen speak on other podcasts, and I was excited to chat with him on Compounders about how he managed to convince his LPs to provide him with a drawdown structure, the hurdle rate for calling capital from LPs, avoiding conformity and the kind of contrarianism that works for Disserene, the characteristics of a business that deserves to exist, and what attracts him to invest in emerging markets. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Su Chen Tan of Disserene Capital. Su Chen, you started Disserene when you were in your early 30s with the goal of investing for 50 years. First, how did you settle on a 50-year time horizon? And I'm curious about what people's initial responses to that goal were. Huh. <laughs> That's a great question. So before I answer it, uh, Ben, again, thanks for having me. I appreciate your invitation and I love your podcast, so I'm delighted to be on it. I want to start by saying that our compliance policies restrict me from discussing performance in a forum like this. And our compliance team has asked me to point out that nothing I say is an offer to sell or a solicitation to buy any security. So an investment decision should be made based on customary and thorough due diligence procedures, which should include, but not be limited to a review of all relevant documents, as well as consultation with legal, tax, and regulatory experts. So that's quite a mouthful, but I needed to say that. So to answer your question, I started Disserene when I had just turned 33. I didn't have any plans to retire, and I still don't. So I thought that 83 years would be a reasonable base case for life expectation. So 50 years seemed like a reasonable proxy for investing lifetime. It also had the advantage of being specific. So many investors say they're long-term, but they leave that term undefined. And often it could be like three years or five years. But one's perspective changes radically when one invests over a 50-year as opposed to a three or five year time horizon. You don't think about it, but it's actually dramatically different. So for example, if you think about 50 year time horizons and you care less about what earnings would be this year, next year, the year after that, you care less about what market multiples would be in a few years and that exit multiple over a three year or five year time horizon, that matters less. And you care less about how others perceive the stock, whether the stock will be re-rated, et cetera, because you own the business over literally an investing lifetime. So instead, you begin to focus a lot more on the fundamental drivers of the company, including what's its reason to exist, including the clock speed, which is the rate at which demand patterns change in the industry, the structural barriers to entry around the business, or we call these modes, or competitive advantages, and then its culture, its values, its leadership. These things matter so much more. So it's actually ironic how value investing has been associated with short-termism in recent years. The conventional wisdom is that if you want to invest over the long time horizon, you should buy growthy compounders with big temps. And if you are buying deep value investments, then you need catalysts for multiple re-ratings. So of course, that's exactly wrong. And it's an exact perversion of all the fundamental principles of long-term value investing. Value investors are long-term precisely because we focus on the intrinsic value of the business, so what a company is really worth instead of what other people think of them. And so for many years, we've had to deal with an Alice in Wonderland world where black is white and white is black. Now, money managers have developed a reputation partly justified for saying one thing and then doing the other. So many investors are fluent in double speak and double think. So naturally, very few people believed us when we said that we wanted to invest over literally a 50-year time horizon, especially because the majority of new funds 
fail in the first three years, right? So the conventional wisdom is that you have to put up numbers very quickly over the next years or you die, right? So put up numbers or die, go big or go home. So that was the consensus. But even from the outset in 2010, we were that serious about what we set out to do. So for example, today, so we're 30 and a half years in, we still continue to own some of the investments that we made back in 2010. And then soon after we launched, we made chunky and hugely unpopular investments in a handful of companies in Greece in the aftermath of the Greek crisis. As you can imagine, so many prospective investors turned their noses up at those investments when they were meeting with us. It was a big chunk of our portfolio. So if we were more short-term and market-to-market returns focused, we would not have made those investments. So these investments worked out well over a multi-year period. So they were fine, but we needed to have the courage of our convictions and to be truly patient when we made them. Now, building an investment program focusing on 50 years also means that we have to make strategic decisions on all aspects of our firm, not just investing, right? And then to run it differently. Starting from the capital base, we seek out limited partners who are philosophically aligned about investing for the long term. All team members need to be long-term thinkers and have this, you know, we call the delayed gratification gene. This is something we screen rigorously for in our recruiting process. When we evaluate performance of team members, we design that to be focused on the long term, not on what your PNL was this year. Our operations team focuses on building processes that are robust and anti-fragile and can survive over multiple years. So the long-term focus, you know, permeates in all that we do. So now, of course, you know, 13 and a half years on, I think more folks believe us when we say that we're generational investors and they believe us when we say that we want to celebrate our 50th anniversary with our current partners. Such an interesting way to start a firm. You also um, seem to want a broad mandate. Why was being global so important to you when you were starting the firm? I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett, when Buffett ran his partnership in the 50s and 60s, the world was a very different place. So over his investing lifetime, he experienced Pax Americana, right? So a lot of wealth was created here in the United States. So if you own Geico or Seas Candy or Coca-Cola or Walmart over Buffett's investing lifetime, you did incredibly well. But this ring was launched in 2010. It's a different time. The world was and is a much more global place. Barriers to capital, barriers to talent, barriers to information, barriers to technology had fallen dramatically. Yet, yet, there were still important cultural, language, and psychological barriers that made capital markets in so many parts of the world quite inefficient. So my belief was that if you wanted to invest over my investing lifetime, one needed to have truly a global mandate and, and an unconstrained mandate because the wealth that was going to be created in the world was not just going to be in the United States. And you're from Malaysia, so you could conceivably have a big edge in a country like that, given your understanding of the culture. But it appears that you're comfortable investing in a bunch of different emerging markets. What about your experiences led you to be attracted to markets that other people may shun for various reasons? I'm from Malaysia, but my grandparents actually came from China and migrated to Malaysia. So I grew up in a country that was very different from theirs. And then I went to Oxford and read law and encountered a culture that was even more different than that. After law school, I moved to New York City and worked with McKinsey and Company. And once again, dropped into a very different cultural milieu. The norms, values, belief systems, and preoccupations of a New York City-based management consultant in the late 1990s in the height of the dot-com bubble was quite different from those of a legal academic in Oxford, England, right? You know, and then a couple of years later, I uh, spent almost a year in India working with McKinsey, then again, a, a different culture. So these experiences mean that I tend, up to today, have an outside-looking-in perspective on every culture and socioeconomic environment that I encounter or study or live in. So, for example, I live in Stamford, Connecticut, but Fairfield County, Connecticut, isn't representative of Connecticut as a whole, uh, let alone the United States. So the perspective allows me and the team to check our cultural assumptions at the door when we encounter businesses operating in different geographies, in different industries, in different socioeconomic uh, contexts. So we become sociologists, not just business analysts, when we try to understand the context within which a particular business operates. So this gives us a measure of confidence that 
we won't have as many blind spots when we encounter a business in a context that's very different from our own. But at the same time, we've also observed that there are many things in common for human beings and human behavior around the world, no matter how different we are. And among these things is human psychology. So regardless of culture, universally, human beings tend to be driven by fear and greed in their economic lives. These lead folks to over-impound risks when they're patent, when they're right in front of you, and underappreciate risks when they are latent, and so when they're less obvious. So understanding this psychology gives us the courage to do the opposite. Now, finally, to answer your question on why not focus on geographies like Malaysia, where I may have a competitive advantage. Here, I think that over-specialization has a real cost. And I'll give you an analogy from evolution of biology. And forgive me, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it's actually things worthwhile doing it. So at the outset, evolutionary biologists recognize that specialization within organisms may evolve because the cost of becoming generalists is high. So I'll give an example. Warm-blooded organisms, such as mammals, maintain a constant internal temperature, which can be achieved only by numerous plastic, anatomical, physiological, and behavioral mechanisms, all requiring significant resources. So such consumption of resources pays off only if the organisms do indeed encounter habitats with very different ambient temperatures. Otherwise, this general strategy of maintaining warm-bloodedness is actually costly and evolutionarily inefficient, right? So this is also true investing. So under constant conditions, a general strategy is often more expensive than a specialist one in terms of resources, including time, including talent, including capital. So it's just costly if you're just doing one thing all the time. But Competition in biological ecosystems and also in investing ecosystems occur not just across space, so across, in the case of organisms, across different habitats, in investing, across different geographies, across different industries, but the competition also happens across time. It's not just space, but it's also time. So in evolutionary biology, this generalist versus specialist debate for competition across time can be couched in bad hedging terms. So fluctuating biological environments over extended time horizons, organisms can bet hedge, meaning hedge their risks of survival in a number of ways. Number one, by diversifying, meaning specializing with different kinds of offspring. Or number two, the conservative bet hedging is by producing a generalist offspring that's anti-fragile, like again, warm-bloodedness. Now, in fluctuating environments, organisms that produce hyper-specialized offspring will have certain offspring that are well adapted to a particular environment, and then all the other offspring become evolutionary dead ends. So that's great. However, the environment can then change, and the surviving offspring that has the specialist traits that survive a particular environment runs the risk of being extinct when the environment changes. So evolutionary biologists have found that if fitness is multiplicative within lifetimes, which is sequential survival probabilities, then generalist individuals are always favored. That means maximizing genetic mean fitness across environmental conditions. So it's crucial to note that the idea is multiplicative. If you survive one environment, can you survive the next one? Can you survive the next one? Can you survive the next one? So this is also true of long-term investing, which is also generally multiplicative and non-agotic. The stream of returns is geometric returns, not arithmetic returns. So applying that insight to investing, right? So just to take that sidebar conversation and bring it back to investing, there will generally be more successful investment programs in any given time that are specialists compared to a generous program like Disreens. So for example, during a fertile investing environment for software, software firms that are specialists will do better than us. Likewise, if there's a fertile investment environment in Brazil, a Brazil specialist firm will do better than us. So in Malaysia, a Malaysia-focused investment firm is far more likely to be able to take advantage of on-the-ground investment opportunities when they exist, rather than us sitting in Stanford, Connecticut. But over the course of an investing lifetime, the investment environment will change multiple times. So that successful software firm or that successful Malaysia-focused investment firm may be very successful in one environment, but less successful 
when the investment environment changes. Indeed, sometimes the same quality that makes the investor so successful in one environment, in one place, may become a blind spot or liability if the environment changes. So in an investment return that's focused on geometric returns, multiplicative, not additive, and it's non-agotic, which means path dependency matters, then the blind spots brought about by over-specialization can actually blow up an investment program. And this is indeed consistent with empirical observations on that. So over the long run, we believe that business in general, and capital allocation in particular, they are fundamentally generalist disciplines. Now, finally, and this is a different point, our generalist instinct is also rooted in motivational psychology. So we observe that many intellectually curious, growth-minded analysts, including the people we hire here at Distrain, are intrinsically driven to spread their minds over the world, and in so doing, to try to understand it better. For these analysts, investing is not just a way to make a living. It's not just a job. It's a way of life. And it can be cognitively dissonant to tell such analysts that, for example, oh, your knowledge should be limited to the west or east of the Bosphorus. Forget mm-hmm. about the other side. Just focus on this because we want to specialize in this. So, Cetris Paribus, so given the same amount of resources, capital, talent, etc., I believe that a generalist first principles-based approach to investing like this is likely to be more anti-fragile, more engaging, more interesting, and ultimately more successful over the course of investing lifetime. It's interesting that you've decided, especially as the world becomes more and more specialized, um, whether it's investment firms or med doctors f- focusing on specialties, it's interesting that you've decided to go the other way uh, and focus on, 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 on generalists. And, and with that in mind, you know, there's this kind of um, aspect of your personality and disarene where you're willing to take the other side of, of sentiment or opportunities. Um, and, and in my career, I've seen a lot of situations where people who, um, you know, are contrarians, like, like being contrarians, and they're kind of, they, they're willing to take this, any, the side of any argument and I'm not sure that leads to success as an investor. What kind of contrarianism have you found works for you? Huh. So I feel that there's only one kind of contrarianism. That is one who reasons independently and logically from first principles. So if one reflexively takes the opposite position from the crowd, then one's still ultimately influenced by the sentiment of the crowd. It's simply in the opposite direction, right? So that's not being contrarian. That's just swaying to the crowd. It's just or swaying against the crowd. So at the core, I think that the issue is both philosophical and then psychological. I'll talk about each, right? So one, the first question is a philosophical question, which is, what is truth? (laughs) So it's one of the deep foundational questions in philosophy. And the question is, does one's conception of truth, you know, that philosophical underpinning is, is truth out there to be discovered? Or is truth a social construct arrived at by obtaining consensus from a large number of people? That's a really important question. What is one's conception of truth? And this is a question I discussed with Andrea Gentilini in a different podcast while he was at Novus, but I'll summarize it here. At Disserine, and for me in particular, but for the team in general, we hold fast to the belief that each business we study has an intrinsic value that we do our best to measure and estimate. Like it's out there in the world, we're trying to measure without falling into a reductionist Berkeleyan conception of intrinsic value being what other market participants will pay for it. Now, I'll talk about what Berkeleyan means. George Berkeley was an 18th century Irish philosopher who advanced a theory of subjective idealism, which argues that things in the world perceived by us, perceived through the mind. So as a result, it cannot exist without being perceived. Absent perception, it doesn't exist. So for example, if a tree in a forest falls to the ground and no one hears it, does it really fall if no one perceives it? Indeed, if no one was around to touch the tree, how could you actually say that the tree exists at all? So that's a very subjectivist, idealistic perception of the world. Applying this to investing, a Berkeleyan conception of value of any asset, call it asset X, is necessarily linked to the price that someone else is willing to pay for it. If no one else is willing to pay that price for it, it cannot be worth X. So the belief goes, if no one is willing to pay a certain price for the asset, then there's no basis for saying that asset X is worth anything at all. On the flip side, if folks are willing to pay a certain price for a particular asset, for example, a Picasso painting or Bitcoin, then that asset must be worth the price that someone else is willing to pay for it. So reality is processed through perception. 
Now, based on this subjectivist approach to investing, the concept of price and the concept of value is conflated. It's the same thing. Price is value. Value is price. If people pay a price for a particular company based on a multiple of earnings, then that company is worth that multiple of earnings. Now, if people value a different business as a multiple of sales, then that company is worth that multiple of sales. Now, if people choose to value another company based on eyeballs or subscribers, etc., then the Berkeley concept goes, well, that company is worth that multiple of eyeballs. So the exercise of figuring out value is basically an exercise in persuasion. You make money if you convince other people to agree with their perception of value. And because people tend to be swayed by narrative, the most successful investors using this approach, the Berkeleyan approach, is the most persuasive storytellers, narrative mm-hmm. makers. Right Now, we have a very different approach. right? So our conception of truth is that it's it's absolute. We, we value that asset has intrinsic worth regardless of whether other people are willing to pay that for it. That worth does not fluctuate moment to moment based on how others perceive the asset at a given time. Instead, intrinsic worth or intrinsic value is simply the net present value of the cash flows of that asset over its economic life. Now, our job as value investors is to try to figure that out we have imperfect tools, we have imperfect information, we have imperfect skills, we can travel through time, we're not omniscient and omnipotent, but we're still trying to figure it out. So, And we're trying to do that in Plato's cave, as it were, with imperfect tools, right? So the idea then is that the fact that we measure intrinsic value imperfectly and we can change our minds about it does not mean that there's no objective intrinsic value. There is one. We just don't know what it is. With the passage of time, we'll find out exactly what a business is worth. If you could live for an entire lifetime, you can see the net present value of a business until that business ends. So you can actually objectively calculate that. So there is objective truth. But figuring that out is a weighing exercise, not a voting exercise. So to the extent we're right or we're wrong doesn't depend on other people. We'll make money if the asset that we own actually generates the cash flow that we expect to generate and we buy it at sufficient margin of safety. So that's a philosophical thing. Now, there's a second element to this, which is psychological, not philosophical. And here, the question that one asks if one is a contrarian is, to what extent is one willing to not conform with consensus? Now, conformity is actually really interesting. So there's a seminal series of experiments conducted in 1951 that was conducted by Solomon Ash, which I think is instructive on conformity. So I'll attempt to describe it here to put you into the mind of the person who's in the experiment, right? So let's imagine that you are a participant in Ash's experiment. You're the sixth person in a row of seven people sitting in a conference room, say. The experimenter asks each participant which of three different lines, A, B, or C, is the same length as a reference line. So you have a reference line and then you have three different lines. The question is, which two lines are the same length? So you look at it and line A is clearly shorter than the reference line. Line B is clearly longer than the reference line. And line C is exactly the same length as a reference line. You stare at the three lines, to you, the answer seems obvious. Line C is the same length as a reference line. Now, the experiment begins, and you're the sixth participant, not number one. So the experimenter asks the first participant, so participant one, which line is the same length as a reference line? To your surprise, participant one calls out line A, not line C. Then participant two says, I think line A is the same length as a reference line. And then participant three says line A is the same length as a reference line. And then participant four does the same thing. And then participant five does the same thing. So now it's your turn, right? So you stare and stare at the lines and you scratch your head. It seems obvious to you that line C is the right answer. But then your pulse quickens and you are in the throes of epistemic angst, right? Which is true, what I observe or what everybody else is saying. So then you repeat the experiment several more times and each time all five participants before you call out the same line which doesn't agree with your observation. So then you begin to wonder, wait, are my eyes reliable? 
should I continue to answer this questions based on what I'm seeing or should I answer the questions based on what everybody else is saying? Now, as it turns out, the rest of the participants in Ash's experiments were actually confederates. They were not actually participants in the experiment. You are the sole subject. The real test isn't about your eyesight or your perceptual judgment. It's actually about your willingness to conform. So Ash actually ran his experiment multiple times in control conditions where there's no other participants. So you're alone in the room. More than 99% of the time, the participant will just identify the right line. So line C being the same. In contrast, 75% of participants who sat six in row of confederates, so five other confederates, who deliberately gave the common answer that was wrong about the line, 37% of the responses were conforming. So people changed their answer to conform. Now, these experiments are especially striking because participants were not told to conform. The goal was to identify the right line. The goal wasn't to achieve consensus. But the urge for the participant to conform stems from an automatic human heightened arousal from knowing that the participant is actually standing out. And you don't want to do that. And that's a human behavior. It's a psychological behavior. So going back to today's investing environment. So our observation is that epistemic ambiguity isn't always the issue. Of course, you don't know what intrinsic value is and reasonable people can disagree, but it's not always the case that there's ambiguity, right? Sometimes it's obvious. So for example, we own some businesses that are purportedly being disrupted by new entrants, often highly unprofitable, with businesses that are a tiny fraction of the size of the incumbents. So as hip as the incumbents that we own are stodgy, these disruptors nonetheless often have expected economics that are far inferior to the incumbents. Even so, until recently, some such disruptors boasted valuations that were comparable or even larger to the much bigger businesses they were seeking to disrupt. Naturally, we ask, hey, is there a bigger game being played here, right? So is that market cap of these companies so big because they're going after some bigger town, there were some other things. And often the answer is no, it's not likely. It's just a small business is trying to disrupt the big one and the big one is the entire industry and that's it. So how can the market cap of that small company that's unprofitable be bigger than the incumbent? So we often find ourselves basically in a metaphorical ashen lab full of people claiming that magic beans that will hopefully grow into three-foot beanstalks are worth more than the beanstalks themselves. Whatever pressure we may feel to conform with our views of others, we believe that it's important to retain the courage to state simply that we believe that they're not. So in our industry, that courage, the ability to stand out and say, hey, that's not true, that courage can be quite prosaic, but it's courage nevertheless. So we're happy to continue to own businesses that are profitable, that are doing a lot better than some of these magic beans, and regardless of how folks mark these assets on their balance sheets. And what you're getting at in that response, and that wonderful response is, is inefficiency in some ways where conformity leads to inefficient pricing. Yes. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious about, you know, you guys focus a fair amount on emerging markets and there's this perception that and if the pricing's more inefficient in those markets versus developed markets, I'm curious about the level of inefficiency in pricing in EM and, and how that's changed, if at all, um, over your almost 14 years of running Disarene. Yeah, it has changed. We forget, but back in 2010, when Disarene was launching, the consensus was that the US and Western Europe were in big trouble because both governments and households were over-leveraged, populations were aging, productivity was declining, etc. right? The consensus was the future was in Asia and with the BRICS, with their young populations, high savings rates, high productivity gains, strong balance sheets, both at the government level and household level, etc. But of course, reality doesn't often follow dominant narratives. So over the last 13 and a half years, the bloom has fallen off the EM and BRICS rows, right? So EM markets have effectively been flat over that period of time. So as a result, large amounts of capital have flat the emerging markets. Of the capital that remains invested, so much of it has gone to either passive or to growth managers. So the EM narrative, as it were, until very recently was concentrated on the coupons and the grabs and C-limiteds of the region. As a result, the analyst coverage and pricing of large swaths of EM companies have become incredibly inefficient, which allows for patient, contrary, and long-term investors like us to accumulate stakes in healthy, 
profitable, well-run companies, often at throwaway valuations. And um, there's um, there were certain investors, maybe guys like Marty Whitman or from Third Avenue, who made money in emerging markets by buying when there was blood in the streets. And so I, clearly that can lead to optically attractive valuations. Talk to me, I mean, you guys went into Greece when there was a lot of turmoil there. Talk to me about your desire to engage in the investing version of running into a burning building. Yeah, running towards instead of away from a burning building or a dislocation actually works well because of the psychological trade, right? Because investors tend to behave irrationally when ruled by fear. So in such times, and to use Jonathan Haidt's metaphor, the elephant is fully in control of the rider. Buffett sometimes described this as selling hurricane insurance right after a hurricane. But when doing so, one still needs to be right when deciding what to buy in a dislocation. And to torture the metaphor, if you run into a burning building to buy crap, you still end up with crap. So for example, folks often like to buy hard asset-based companies, such as a property developer or real estate investment trust, at large discounts to book value after dislocation. But the accounting book values of such assets are often hugely inflated as a result of asset price bubbles preceding the dislocation. So many such assets end up being white elephants because of overbuilding or overinvestment, for example, in real estate. The intrinsic value of these assets may be close to zero as a result, regardless of what they're being carried on their balance sheets. So buying these assets at large discounts to book isn't value investing. The investment isn't getting an asset at discount to intrinsic value. It's just getting a discount to accounting book value. And there is no margin of safety. Sometimes value investors get bad reps for buying these quote-unquote value traps. But I would argue that if you're buying something that's worth nothing at a discount to its accounting book, then that's not value investing at all. We've talked a lot about uh, philosophy um, and, and kind of the founding principles of Disserene. I'd love to talk a little bit about the structure of the firm. I would say you have one of the most enviable structures of any public company investor I know. Do you have a sense for what it was about you or Disserene, um, or Disserene in general that made people comfortable allowing you to create a drawdown structure that is more common in private equity? I don't think there's any magic to this. A drawdown structure simply makes better sense given how we invest. We have an investment horizon that's longer than most private equity firms. We're talking about generational time horizons. We're talking about being around for 50 years, right? And then we have high absolute hurdle rates for our investments. And then we talk about swinging rally as we wait for fat pitches. Now, these things are hard to do. It's easy to describe that, but it's hard to do if we're forced to be fully invested at all times and to deploy capital when new investors decide to give us that capital which tends to be pro-cyclical, right? So usually investment firms raise more capital after periods of strong mark-to-market returns and then to put it to work at those times. So it's funny how some investors are willing to lock themselves up for five years, 10 years in private equity structures and then demand quarterly, even daily liquidity simply because the underlying companies are publicly traded. And the underlying company may actually be the same but the investment horizon suddenly shrinks when companies go public. So reasoning from first principles, this makes no sense at all, right? You can imagine a visitor from Mars, unfamiliar with human psychology, will be hard pressed to figure out why the very same asset that's not marked to market, you know, is held in multi-year structures, often laden with a lot of debt. And then when it goes public, all of a sudden, when they're marked to market, they're held in short duration vehicles and then investors are suddenly focused on quarter to quarter and year to year numbers. It just makes no sense. But fortunately for us, things have a way to work themselves out when they're reasonable, even when they're unconventional. So I think our structure has resonated with some of our partners because it just makes sense from first principles. And then for taxable investors, our structure also has the benefit of being quite tax efficient because we don't actually have to sell something in order to buy something else. We just call capital to do so. And this reduces the turnover in the portfolio as well. A lot of people, uh, including myself, by the way, would likely try to get fancy given the drawdown structure. For example, I might try to take a company private if the stars align. Is there any chance that Disterene evolves over time to be a hybrid public-private firm? 
our mandate actually already allows us to make private investments. But for the last 13 and a half plus years, we haven't done any of them. Because this hasn't been a fertile environment for such investments. If once a disciplined, long-term value investor looking to buy private companies for cash flow instead of trying to flip the asset. There's simply been too much money flowing into private equity, chasing too few good investments. The challenge is compounded by an almost unlimited amount of nearly free debt for financing such deals. So in this kind of environment, the odds of actually experiencing good long-term investment returns from buying and then holding on to that company is diminishingly slim. Of course, for a while, you can get billed out right, by buying some assets and flipping into somebody else who's willing to pay an even higher price for them. But inevitably, someone has to hold the bag. And I'm curious about when you have called capital, I'm interested in the hurdle rate that for an investment or for you know, kind of like coming off the sidelines in some degree. I could see the capital being available, leading you to making good but not great investments. How do you let it not burn a hole in your proverbial pocket? I think most of our limited partners will say that we have the opposite problem. <laughs> We're often perceived as being too comfortable not calling capital for long stretches of time when there's nothing to do and nothing that meets our hurdle rate. So we maintain our discipline because our hurdle rates are actually high in absolute terms. And the number of investments that actually meet uh, tend to be not high in any given time. Now, there's always an investment that's cheap relative to the market, right? In any given market, you draw a bell curve, there's some assets that are cheaper than others. But there are long stretches of time, for example, from 2016 to 2019, where from an absolute basis, not a relative basis, on an absolute basis, almost everything is overvalued almost everywhere in the world and almost across all asset classes. So the right thing to do during those periods is often to do nothing. But of course, the incentive for a money manager that collects fees on assets managed is to justify buying activity. Now, we don't do so and we didn't do so 2016 to 2019 because we believe that it was especially important in those times to keep our heads when others were losing theirs. So that's, a, again, back to philosophy and principles. That has to govern as opposed to, to the economic interest. And you ask yourself one of my favorite questions when assessing an investment. If this business went away, would anyone care? What are the general characteristics of a business that deserves to exist? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, many such businesses offer products or services that are valued by customers, but they are not easily served by substitutes. So for example, if the Suez Canal closed tomorrow, the alternatives for folks who want to move passengers or goods to and from Europe and Asia are one, to sail across the Cape of Good Hope, two, travel over land, or three, fly. But none of these are good substitutes, right? So in contrast, if Lululemon disappeared from the face of the earth tomorrow, it's likely the customers would be bummed. But I suspect that they'll soon find alternatives without great cost and inconvenience. Indistorene also has a Rip Van Winkle test that helps affirm focus on businesses that are likely to be somewhat similar in 10 years to what they look like now. That, I mean, you mentioned Lululemon. I mean, that would suggest to me that you gravitate towards long-standing brands that are unlikely to suffer disruption versus a tech company, for example. So I'm just trying to get a sense of like what what is what kind of company in your mind passes the Rip Van Winkle test, if not for something that's established a really good brand like a Lululemon. Yeah. So the consensus, conventional wisdom is, okay, if you have a long-term time horizon, you end up buying consumer brands and you avoid tech, right? Well, this is true in principle, but one cannot overgeneralize, right? So for example, there are some tech businesses that have low clock speeds. For example, we bought Microsoft in 2011 when the consensus was that Apple was going to eat its lunch in its core business. Conversely, some long-standing consumer brands may nevertheless decline, especially with the fragmentation of media, allowing for the growth of micro-brands and the increased penetration of e-commerce, reducing the importance of locking up physical shelf space and then enabling smaller players to serve the long tail of heterogeneous consumer demand. So brands are not what they used to be simply because media is not what it used to be. There are few absolutes in investing. It's not as easy 
easy as saying we're going to buy this kind of industry or that kind of industry. And I think one of my favorite things that I've learned about your process is that you guys do a deep dive on a lot of industries during what you call peacetime. I mean, and one of the things I've thought about as as I've heard you describe that process is, you know, you're you're doing work on all these companies around the world and you're coming up with prices that you might be willing to pay, but there's gotta be some prioritization, right? And it, so that when when things go badly in March of 2020 or March of 2009, like that there's, that you know what to invest in. So I'm trying to get a sense of how you would rank what businesses should remain on a wish list after you've studied an industry during peacetime. There's no science to this. We evaluate each business bottom up, one company at a time, each company is its own thing, right? So a company may benefit from formidable barriers to entry, that difficult to penetrate, but then it may have a worse culture than its peers. So another company may have important sources of competitive advantage, but suffer from poor capital allocation decision-making. So in this environment, there's a quality at any price cult that's going on in the industry. And what I'm saying is almost apostasy. But we believe that it's impossible to force rank companies based on quality without reference to the prices we're being asked to pay for the companies. So in each case, we evaluate the business and with hair and all, maybe good management team, but more it's not so strong. Maybe clock speed's not so good. Well, whatever case might be, we can evaluate each company relative to the market price that we're asked to pay for it and then ask ourselves what margin of safety we have if we were to invest in that company. And in that response, you highlighted that you know management's an important part of any assessment of a business one of the pillars uh, of the firm is to partner with CEOs and CFOs of the companies you invest in. I saw that you recently flexed some activist muscles in a situation where one of your companies, IAA, was being sold. How active are you typically with your management partners? Yeah, we try to be actively constructive with each of the companies we invested with. But we try very hard not to be activist unless we have to be. We actually much prefer being supportive and helpful shareholders, as was the case with many of the companies. And then ask our CEOs and CFOs to think of ourselves as an extension of their teams, right? So we succeed if they succeed and our success is tied to theirs. Now, in many cases, we've been shareholders of a portfolio company for many, many years, and in many cases, over a decade. And then you've just built out genuine partnerships with them. So our history over the last 13 and a half or so years has been really, frankly, written in large part by what we call Hall of Fame CEOs, CFOs, and teams who have demonstrated tremendous integrity and skill and grace and patience managing their businesses, often in very difficult operating environments, and as a result, have created a lot of value for us and for other shareholders. And that's the real story, as opposed to the times when things go wrong. And, um, I mean, I get the sense that governance and... Um, integrity and, I mean, the rights of shareholders and, you know, the, the to some extent, the primacy of shareholders are, are important to you. And you also have a legal background. So with all that in mind, it kind of surprises me that you would put money into China. How do you get comfortable <laughs> with governance and your rights as an investor in China? Yeah, that's a great question. So we invest in companies and in the people who run them, not in countries. I'm a lawyer, so we have a bundle of rights and claims that can be enforced in a particular jurisdiction in the corporations who are invested in. But it's also important to understand it's not just a legal bundle of rights, but the incentives and interests of the management teams that we're invested with. Minority shareholder rights can be trampled anywhere, whether it's Korea or Portugal or even here in the United States. And the legal regimes protecting such interests can be surprisingly weak in many, many jurisdictions, not just China, but many jurisdictions. So with respect to China in particular, I don't think that one can paint all businesses in a country with 1.4 billion people with one brush. Ditto India, right, which is another big country. Indeed, it wasn't all that many years ago that the conventional wisdom was that China was where all the investment action was, and that India was a difficult place to do business. But the legal regime is the same today as it was those few years ago, yet the consensus has shifted on that, the narrative has shifted on that. So I think it's more important 
you hear a recurring theme here, to really focus on the business and really focus on exactly what it is that we're buying and the team that we partner with, et cetera, than to think in terms of countries. And I know you guys are turning over stones in a lot of different areas and, and looking at specific companies, not just countries. And, and that has required a team that has been has grown over time. And you know, given the wide universe, I think that makes some amount of sense. What have you decided on regarding the proper team size? We don't have a magic number in mind. The important thing we look out for here, and it's really important, is that there's sufficient quality control and sufficient mentoring on the team. So we're lucky that many members of our investment team have been with the firm for many years and are deeply steeped in the district investment philosophy and research process. So we can pair newer members of the team with one of our more seasoned team members, which allows each team member to be coached and mentored because at the end of the day, this is an apprenticeship process. And then for the work to be vetted and then challenged. And then for me to be sufficiently close to the work. Uh, so that's important. And that's what we look out for. Now, you didn't ask this question, but I think it's important when we think about team size is we've also consciously sought to hire people very different from ourselves. So today, our investment team consists of folks from seven different nationalities, and we speak eight different languages. Two team members have lived and worked on literally four different continents. Two have lived and worked on three different continents, and two on two different continents. So the team is strikingly diverse in terms of academic and technical background. So people have undergraduate or graduate degrees in accounting and business administration and economics and engineering and finance and law and politics and taxation. And team members have worked as academic researchers and investment bankers and management consultants and private equity analysts and public accounting auditors and stock pickers and tech entrepreneurs. And then if you look across the team, we have disparate cultural, religious, political Hmm. backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, intellectual, philosophical, epistemic influences that are very varied within the team and personal biographies that are very different. Some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts. There are college jocks and college nerds, data-driven quantitative analysts and big picture thinkers, relationship developers and logical problem solvers. And that's really important, right? I think it's important for us to celebrate. Yet, we share a lot of common values, investment philosophy, beliefs and goals. And I think this makes the team stronger and it makes it such that the addition of each team member actually is NPV positive for us. And switching gears a little bit, I think it'd be a shame if we didn't get to talk to you about um, developing a relationship with LPs and finding the right LPs. You work for Seth Klarman at Baupost and we always used to joke at my old firm that our goal was to have Seth's client base. I'm interested in what you learned from working at Baupost about attracting the types of LPs you actually want to have in your investor base. Our LP base makes all the difference in the world. So Disring cannot invest the way it does without the partners that we have. I suspect that's true for Baupost as well. I believe that on this point, we get the partners we deserve. I don't think that trust can be demanded. It has to be earned. And in order to win the trust of good, long-term, partnership-minded investors, we need to behave in a way that engenders that trust. So for example, some portfolio managers like to cultivate a Wizard of Oz-like persona. Mm -hmm. So they speak at investment conferences and talk about what they're seeing in the markets in 2024. Um, Now, speaking for myself, I can't see anything. I don't have a crystal ball and I can't predict the future. I'm simply one human being trying to do the best I can with imperfect knowledge, imperfect tools, imperfect skills, limited resources. So we believe that it's more honest to share our research process, our struggles, our worries with our investors, and then bring them into the fold in terms of our investing journey. We don't pretend to have all the answers. We're brutally honest when we make investment mistakes. We often ask them for help. We often tell them when we're struggling. So that creates a different sense of partnership. We're deeply earnest when we say that we want to work with long-term-minded, philosophically-aligned investors, and we're happy to decline capital from investors who are not aligned with us, right? So I think the approach makes for deeper relationships, a more honest partnership with our limited partners. And we try to walk the walk our conviction. So for example, we've turned down a lot of capital over the years. And to be clear, this isn't because of any full exclusivity on our part. We do not have <laughs> that arrogance. We simply think that that's the right thing to do for the long-term success of, of the collective partnership. And you've grown um, a lot 
from the days when Disarena only had about 60 million under management, you also want to compound at a higher rate for decades. Um, I, at some point, size is going to be the enemy of success. What is your current belief about the capacity of the strategy? That's a great question. We don't have a magic number on that. We have an unconstrained investment mandate, but our capacity is actually constrained not by the mandate because it's as broad as broad can be, but it's constrained by, like I discussed, the very demanding absolute hurdle rate that we have to find investments that meet that. That's the limiting factor. Over the past 13 and a half plus years, we've closed to new investors whenever we've determined that we have more unfunded capital commitments than is justified by a pipeline of ideas. We've also turned down a lot of capital. So for many years, a running joke at Disreden was that we'd said no to more capital than we'd actually accepted. In addition, we've voluntarily returned capital to investors on multiple occasions, including in 2023, last year. So cash has never burned a hole in our pockets. Growth for its own sake has never been a goal, but the right kind of growth at the right time, at the right pace, with the right kind of partner can be tremendously value creating. And here, I think it's actually helpful to talk about something that we talk a lot with the partners when, when they come on board a partnership and also afterwards, which is the concept of, and this is a game theory concept, of commitment devices. So one of the most important and maybe counterintuitive insights from game theory is making a priori commitments, which is emitting certain options ahead of time. And that can actually improve strategic and economic outcomes. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. The important insight here is that in an interactive environment, where other players can respond to one's actions, once having more strategic choices and capabilities can paradoxically leave one worse off. And there are multiple circumstances when deliberately tying one's hands and eliminating options actually is the dominant strategy. So in the case of an investment enterprise like ours, every investor in an investment partnership is actually better off if each can credibly commit to behaving in a long-term manner and publicly signal that commitment to all other investors. In practice, in a diffuse investment partnership with many investors, it's actually difficult to do, right? For a single investor to nudge all the other investors in the partnership to a long-term Nash equilibrium as opposed to a short-term one. So if you already have multiple different investors with multiple different investment horizons, it's hard to credibly unilaterally nudge the whole investment partnership to a long-term equilibrium. The coordination problem is large. And so the incentive is always for an individual investor to cheat. That's why investment partnerships are often susceptible to experiencing a run on a bank. There's often a rush out the door by all investors when it looks like a partnership is beginning to wobble. It doesn't pay to be the last person standing, right? So if one LP is long-term and everybody else is short-term and everybody else runs out and the LP stays in, the investment partnership's losses become self-fulfilling as there's forced selling, there's equity that causes further dislocations. And so the last person out holds the bag. So at Disserene, we believe that there's actually an important competitive advantage around investment partnership that is particularly patient and particularly careful about seeking out long-term partnership-minded investors. Each investor in a partnership makes a long-term commitment to the partnership and as a result, result, every investor partnership is better off. So a superior Nash equilibrium is then achieved. So I know that running $20 billion is not going to be the answer to this question because you're not focused on AUM. So I am curious, though, um, if we're having this conversation seven years from now, what would success look like to you? Well, that's actually an easy question to answer because we actually wrote it down. <laughs> so... We call them our big, hairy, audacious goals for 2030. Now, they're called big, hairy, audacious goals for a reason, and I don't know how many of them will actually achieve, but here's a summary anyway, right? So I'll list them. So number one, the definition of success is that we've maintained our integrity and stayed true to our values. That's literally number one. Number two, we've compounded the capital entrusted to us at high absolute rates of return. Number three, for disarranged investors, being a disarranged limited partner is like being part of a valued circle of trust. Once you're in, you'll never leave. Disarranged will have good years, will have bad years performance-wise, but it's the one investment that no one ever thinks of getting rid of. And for non-disarranged investors, it's the one partnership that they wish they could join. Number four, 
for distrain portfolio companies, so the companies were invested with, distrain is the first shareholder they think of calling if they need smart long-term capital and good counsel. And then CEOs and CFOs celebrate when we show up as a shareholder. They don't lawyer up. Number five, for organizations that are distrain giving beneficiaries, Disrin is not just a donor, but also a powerful ally. Now, number six, for the broader constellation of Disrin stakeholders, the firm is viewed as a force for good. So we're held out as an example of what an investment firm should be like and how an investment firm should behave. And the Disrin name is associated with good stewardship, positive influence on people, ethics, outcomes at companies, we're associated as being A players, kind of like the Navy SEALs. We're associated for long-term partnership mindedness. And then we're associated with intellectual heft. So first principles thinking, depth, rigor, originality, creativity, summing up to a coherent disrine school or disrine tradition for thinking. So that's six. So number seven, disrine team members love what they do. The firm is a platform for them and for their families to flourish, both personally and professionally. For team members, this ring is the fullest expression of how they would like to manage their money. For new hires, getting an offer from this ring is like a dream come true. Like Google, this ring employees are paid to think, to create, to build, and to realize their full potential. But unlike Google, this ring hires very few people. And then number eight, and we can talk about firm culture. Team members want to work together because they genuinely enjoy it and they cannot imagine doing anything else. The firm has developed a performance culture that's also partnership-focused. And so that combination of being long-term performance-focused but partnership-focused and team-oriented with reasonably low turnover. So even if there's turnover, partings are good partings and people go on to do other things and flourish, but then always part of the district family. And for team members to who stay, they're accountable to each other for their performance and behavior, but they also genuinely respect each other. Team members feel like they have a sense of ownership. They're empowered to make real contributions. And the firm has fostered an intellectual environment that is growth-oriented, but also humble, honest, creative, and first principle-based. So that's eight. So that's culture. Number nine, we continue to learn and to both deepen and widen our circles of competence. And as a result, become better investors over time than we are today. And number 10, last but not least, we continue to enjoy the journey and continue to tap down to work. I love that. And I'm just as you're listing those off, I was thinking about how different a number of those are versus I think what the perception of what most investment firms uh, focus on, which is maybe returns and AUM growth and, you know, the financial rewards. So thanks for sharing all of that with us. Um, Sujan, I could I could do this all day, and um, I, I know that you have a lot to tend to. So we're going to close this uh, question with the question we ask all of our manager guests. What do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity in front of Disarray today? At different times, dislocations and mispricings and investment opportunities will occur in different assets, in different geographies, different industries, different asset classes, you name it, right? So today, I think that dislocations are more plentiful in developing rather than developed markets. Tomorrow, investor sentiment can flip around. You just never know. But value investing can really only exist as a discipline if it is underappreciated. So almost kind of underappreciation is a feature, not a bug. We just have to be comfortable being lonely. Otherwise, we will not be able to buy companies that we love at large discounts to what they're worth. It's just not going to happen. So your question is underappreciation of the investment program. I hope that we will always be underappreciated. <laughs> That's why we would continue to exist. And you've structured the firm to have a bunch of generalists as opposed to specialists who can then go around the world to where those dislocations are. And if it goes from EM to develop markets or from growth to value, you're in position to benefit. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, it's people like to talk about factors and stuff like that. At the end of the day, it's about identifying good companies that you couldn't buy at large margins of safety, wherever this may lie. And the question is, when those opportunities present themselves, can you recognize them? Can you do the work? Can you get comfortable? And can you act with sufficient conviction to do that, right? And everything that we've talked about 
helps us do that. The structure of the capital, the partners that we have, the team that we have, the patients that we have, the drawdown structure, you name it. And then building up these mental models to be able to actually recognize when you actually do have a business in front of you that is actually a compelling fat pitch. Often the things that prevent that are psychological at the time when something investment opportunity presents itself is not going to look pretty it's going to look ugly but being able to see through that and to recognize an investment as a good one that's the heart of it and it's a craft that we keep working on well Sushan, it, i have to say it is always a pleasure for me to listen to you speak and to um you know i'm always in terms of uh you i think you said there's a you, you want to be the place to work and you want to you want people to tap dance to work i'm always tap dancing when i uh when i see that you come on a podcast um, <laughs> and i really appreciate you coming on compounders thanks for your time and uh, i'd love to do it again sometime thanks man you're too kind